Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven horns, seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up, with, caught up to God and sent to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war rose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now! the salvation and the power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. <clears throat> and the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray, and then we'll look at the first six verses in this passage. Uh, Lord, help us. That was rich imagery we just heard. Uh, help us to sort of separate out what is cultural that has formed our imagination through Hollywood or. Paradise Lost by John Milton and other books we've read and uh, be formed by your scripture. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to do that. But that is the help you give. So by his power now, help us to see clearly and communicate clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. This, this last week, 
We made a quick trip to visit one of our children. Our daughter Sarah lives in Florida. We made a two-day trip just down to, down to see her for a second. And during that trip, we were doing a tour of the University of North Florida, this large campus, beautiful, lush campus with all these little bodies of water, and all these signs everywhere at the University of North Florida that says this, do not feed the alligators. Alligators cannot be tamed. Do not feed the alligators. Alligators cannot be tamed. It's like they were everywhere. So I'm imagining that the reason for these signs is something like there are a few alumni out there walking around with eight fingers instead of ten. Because at some point, some 20-year-old man or woman thought, this is a cute little alligator. What's going to be the problem with feeding this alligator? The problem is the alligator didn't want just want the bread. It also wanted your fingers. And it's not a little pet, and they're missing fingers. Don't feed the alligators. Alligators cannot be tamed. So the school now has to tell the students there is a fundamental disconnect between alligators and people. Right? There's fundamentally, if you will, an adversarial relationship between an alligator and a person. Uh, they are not on your team. They are not your friend. They are not going to be a good pet, regardless of what you see on TV. You can live with them and, and even enjoy them if you're wise and you keep them at a distance. But left to their own devices, what they want is to devour you. Because that's what an alligator is. It wants to eat you. It won't get better. It will always want to eat you. Do not feed the alligators. They are not your friend. They want to devour you. One of, the, one of the themes of the book of Revelation that Revelation gives a lot of airtime to and a lot of images for is to communicate this one thing to the people of God. You were born into a world of spiritual war. It's not always obvious, but you were born into a world of spiritual war and you have an enemy because there is an enemy of Jesus Christ. And therefore, an enemy to those who are in Christ. And if he had his way, he would want to derail you, destroy you, and devour you in some way. And the invitation of Revelation 12, the whole passage, is for our imagination or our mind's eye or our, on our understanding to be tuned to that reality. That we are born into a world at war with an enemy who's not always evident. And you might have noticed that as we've gone through the book of Revelation, we haven't done a lot of application. In part, obvious application, in part that is because part of the main application of Revelation is to retune our imagination. I didn't, I didn't put this quote in your insert. I put it in, I'll put it in a couple weeks, but theologian Richard Baucom writes this. One of the functions of the book of Revelation is both to purge and refurbish or rebuild the Christian imagination. To purge and refurbish the Christian imagination. It, it Revelation, tackles our imaginative response to the world, and that imaginative response is at least as deeply influential on us as our intellectual convictions. Let me read that last phrase again. Revelation tackles our imaginative response to the world, which is at least as deep and influential as our intellectual convictions. What he's saying is there, how we see things, how we imagine things could be or couldn't be, those are as powerful in our minds as what we say we believe. 
Now, I'm not talking about imagination like make-believe stuff, just what you consider possible or impossible to be true or what images come to mind in particular situations. And here, a powerful image that we're invited to see is the image of being in a world that is in spiritual conflict, but as a people who are preserved by God in the midst of that conflict and even nourished by Him in the middle of it. Remember, Jesus prayed, Lord, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I want you to be with them in the world. Set them apart by your word and by, by the gospel so they can be present in the world. So you live in a world of spiritual war. You, where you go to work perhaps. Maybe even in your own family there's these dynamics happening. And the, the desire of Jesus is not to suck us out of those things and huddle over in the corner, but to be present with him in the middle of that. That's exa- exactly what Jesus prayed for and exactly what we see here. At the top of your insert inside... I put in big red letters so we don't miss it. The main idea I want to communicate, that the Lord nourishes his church, you all, us, in Christ. The Lord nourishes his church in the wilderness as the normal way of life in a world of spiritual war. The Lord nourishes his church in the wilderness as a normal way of life in a world in spiritual warfare. And we'll unpack that here. So let's start. First, we see that we are nourished by God as those who are born into a battle. Verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So first thing we see here is a woman with this decorum of earth, or the, the moon, sun, and stars. And before we say, I wonder what that means, we say, where would we find that, the answer to that question likely in the book of Revelation? Answer? Old Testament, right? This is what we've been saying every week. Is there anything where a picture of the sun, moon, and stars are coming together in the Old Testament? Yes, it's one of the central stories of the Old Testament. It's Joseph's dream, which, by the way, made his brothers jealous and got him sold into Egypt. Let me just read it to you from Genesis 37. Then Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. So the real problem is not that he dreamed it, but that he shared it with his brothers. And said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Right? They already didn't like the first dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. <laughs> no wonder they didn't like the guy. But when he told it to the father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And if you know the story of uh, Joseph, that's exactly what they did because there was a famine. He got Well, that dream caused him to get sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up in Egypt, the second command of Egypt. There's a famine. All his family comes to Egypt, and it's the, the mother and the father and, the, well, 11 brothers at that point bowing down to him. Now, if you ask, why is there 11 stars here in Genesis 12 in Revelation? It's because Joseph didn't bow to himself, but there were 12 tribes. So the, picture, the, the idea is the sun, moon, and stars are a picture of Jacob, his wife, and the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons. Uh, this is the picture of the faithful people down through the ages. Restored Israel in the book of Isaiah is also pictured as a woman with many children, giving birth to many children with a spiritual heritage. 
Revelation 21, we see the, 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 the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the people of God as a bride adorned for her husband. We hear this, that we, we see the, the church pictured as the bride of Christ, a, a woman, singular, the bride of Christ. That's the image in the New Testament. And, of course, we think of Mary in this passage as representative of the people of God. So here's the point. You are the woman. Right? The church is the woman in this picture, the faithful picture. Uh, coming to the foreground, at Mary is a representative of this, but this is the faithful people through the ages. And remember, this isn't like narrating a flow of history. It's giving us an image with historical events in it. There is a historical event here, the birth of Christ. You have a woman crying out in pain. So at first we think, oh, this is obviously Mary crying out in pain, right? Because she's giving birth. And if you've given birth, you might say, I remember crying out in pain. It was even more so before the age of modern medicine and epidurals. So, but this isn't just a picture of like an ancient Near Eastern delivery room, Mary crying out in pain, giving birth. There's another interesting phrase in there. She was crying out in pain and the agony of giving birth. That's a phrase specifically for persecution. It's a picture of the, the persecuted, faithful Jewish community leading up to the birth of Christ, right? This is persecuted internally from faithless leaders, externally from oppressive, you know, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the, the Greeks, the Romans, name it. They were oppressed by them. And this woman is standing in contrast to another woman who will come on the scene in four chapters, five chapters. Revelation 17 you have another woman pictured who's called the whore of Babylon, the great harlot. So you have this contrast between this woman in Revelation 12 as this virtuous, faithful woman and the woman in Revelation 17 as a seductive and destructive woman in contrast here. Um, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head, on each of his heads, seven diadems. So there's these two signs in heaven. It looks like they're like in contrast and fighting each other perhaps. And the dragon is identified in verse 9. We're not going to look at it today, but let me just point you to it where it says, the dragon is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. So his, his uh, identity is not kept secret for long. We're told in verse 9 who this is. It's Satan. He's pictured here as a great red dragon. All through the Old Testament, the, the dragon was a symbol given by Israel to their evil oppressors, particularly Pharaoh and particularly Egypt. When you read through the Old Testament and you see the word Leviathan, Leviathan is the Hebrew word for dragon. Right? So, Pharaoh is likened to Leviathan. Uh, uh, Goliath is also. One interesting time also, Leviathan, or the dragon, has several heads. Let me just read to you Psalm 74, verse 12. My, my God is the king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth, you divided the sea by your might. So we're talking about the Red Sea. When they led them out of slavery in Egypt, divided the sea. These are our people, right? Our ancestors. And then you broke the heads of the sea monster on the waters. And say, well, what's that? Well, Revelation says it in parallel right after that. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. Or, I'm going to put the Greek translation on it. You crushed the heads of the dragon. 
That's a picture that's given right here. And you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So possibly what that's talking about, if you remember, God opened the Red Sea, the people went through, Pharaoh and all his, his power sent his army through, this multifaceted destructive power, and God closed the sea, and they get washed up on the shore and eaten by wild animals. They're food for animals in the wilderness. There you go. Now, of course, they didn't think Pharaoh was actually a dragon. Right? It was just a symbol given to him into Goliath, that he was serpentine, like the snake in the garden. Now, we still do that today. We, st- we actually have the same image today. Uh, if, if you remember that great theologian from the 1980s, Paula Abdul, you're a cold-hearted snake. He's a cold-hearted snake. He's as cold as ice. Uh-oh. Okay, so. <laughs> when we say of a man he's a snake... We mean he's creepy and deceptive, and usually there's a sexual connotation to it as well. But that's a, it's a serpentine symbol. We don't really think this person is uh, actually cold-blooded. We just say, you're snake-like. You're creepy and deceptive. It's a symbol attributed to someone we don't like. Well, this is the same thing. Pharaoh was called a dragon, not creepy and deceptive, but deceptive and destructive. That's this image of a dragon. And we see what lies behind that that image, Satan himself. He is pictured as in the color red. Red is the color of the, the harlot, the whore of Babylon, who is red because it says she's drunk with the blood of the saints. Right? It's very graphic language. There's so much persecution of the church, like blood of the saints is all over her. Like I didn't write it. It's graphic, but uh, the Lord wrote it. It's also the picture of the red horse earlier that we saw, the second seal, uh, the, the red horse that rides out and it, it signifies destruction of each other, bloodshed. So what you have here is a gray dragon with a color that in Revelation signifies destruction and devastation with a particular persecution angle. This is not painting the dragon in a favorable light, but he looks good. He has seven heads. What does this mean? The head in the New Testament signifies authority. That's why we say Christ is the head of the church, the head of state. You know, we still have these languages. The head is the leader, it's authority. Um, Horns, likewise, are a sign of power. Ten is sort of a complete number. Each head has ten horns. That is from, uh, you'll see this odd phrase, especially in the Old Testament, that the Lord has lifted up my horn. You're like, what is he talking about? It's like a trumpet? What is going on? No, it's not a trumpet. It's Again, we, this isn't our culture, but if a, if a bull would get in a bullfight with another bull and be victorious, if you, you see, if you see this, the bull will lift up in victory and in power and in authority afterwards. His horns are lifted up. And that became a symbol of my power is shown to be great because I have overcome. My strength is overcome or the strength that's connected to me is overcome. So you have seven heads of authority all with ten horns. So this is a picture of perfect power. It's a claim that the dragon is making to be perfectly powerful and each head has a diadem or a crown on it, sort of royal prestige. So this dragon is pictured as one who is full of authority and royal prestige. And you might say, well, who else in Scripture is shown to be perfect in authority and royal prestige and honor? It's the Lord. What this is saying, as we'll see in the rest of Revelation, is Satan often imitates the Lord. He's shown he's making a claim to authority and power. 
He's making a claim to honor and prestige. And so that at least this should teach us a couple things. First, Satan's devices, his way of operating in the world, looks good. It looks good. It looks powerful and honorable. This is a place we have to divorce ourselves from Hollywood's depiction of satanic and demonic realities. And let me stop, push pause here before I go on there and say, I should have said, the way we're approaching Revelation is we believe this is capturing dynamics that work throughout history. And so we, we would anticipate seeing whatever we see here in dynamics in great ways and small ways, in obvious ways and subtle ways. Okay? Satan looks good. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Paul says Satan parades or masquerades, disguises himself as an angel of light. This is one thing Hollywood gets wrong. Demonic activity isn't obviously ugly at first. At first, it looks good, maybe even beautiful and right. And who could think this is wrong? That's why we dare not allow human judgment to make discernments on this apart from the Scripture, because it looks good. He parades as an angel of light. Most evil at the beginning doesn't look evil. Most false teachers at the beginning seem pretty reasonable and pretty wise and pretty insightful. Why? Because Satan parades, masquerades as an angel of light. This also teaches us here that Satan seduces through the promise or exercise of power and honor or power and prestige or popularity or seduces through the threat of removing power or popularity, honor, or prestige. Or maybe the threat of insecurity and shame. These sort of things. And again, this is a place where we have to sort of divorce our Hollywood imagination from the biblical imagination. Uh, Demonic activity, actual demonic activity in the world, looks less like heads spinning around, you know, and flies coming out of the mouth, you know, whatever Hollywood, and a lot more like oppressive political regimes that are obviously oppressive just a little bit, and then just a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. Or fathers who are oppressive a little bit, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. And mothers who are oppressive just a little bit more, and a little bit more. It looks like the now famous threat of being canceled on social media. That fear that even celebrities would have of like saying the wrong thing is a demonic dynamic. It is. It's a threat of reducing honor or bringing shame on someone. Actual demonic activity looks far less like, you know, people sticking to the ceiling with broken bones. Like think of, uh, uh, oh, what's the, the Stranger Things. Yeah, I was thinking, not actually, Stranger Things, like the last season. That really wasn't dynamic. It was really weird. Um, but that's like the picture, the Hollywood picture of demonic activity, like somebody just stuck to the ceiling, all broken and flat, right? It's actually a lot more like subtle systems of economic injustice that oppress some groups and alienate other groups and enslave other people. It's actually a lot more like the threat of, of not being honored by the right people or being out of step with culture or being, uh, uh, you know, heaven forbid we uh, on the wrong side of history. All that kind of ridiculous statement. 
That's just a threat of shame and, and, and honor and prestige. Like, you're not going to get prestige. Prestige is going to be removed from you. It's just di- demonic dynamic. That's it. And that's, that's all right here in this picture. Oh, here's what that dragon looks like. Number, verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. What does this mean? I want to definitively tell you I have no idea what that means. I don't know. Maybe you have some good ideas. There's a lot of ideas out there. Some people think it's like this is a sign that Satan, when he rebelled, took a third of the angels with him and they became demons. Okay. Cool. No other passage of the Bible says that, and, but Milton says that in Paradise Lost in 1694. It really wasn't in the literature before that, but okay, maybe, who knows. Um, angels are called stars in Revelation 1, verse 20. There are demons. Maybe that's how it happened. I don't know. In verse 1 of this passage, the stars seem to be the faithful in Israel. So maybe it's, some people would think, maybe it's Satan's ability to con- continue to destruct and de- destroy and devastate God's people. Okay, maybe that too. I don't know. Maybe the idea is that Satan has a way of taking what's heavenly and making it earthly and base and destroying it. I don't know. Write a dissertation on it. Let me know what you find out. So, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is a picture of the desire of Satan at the birth of Christ. When Jesus was his most vulnerable... And perhaps also Satan's work in Christ's life and his time on earth through temptation and persecution. Now, I think that to me is a much better manger scene than most of your manger scenes. There's the Mary and Joseph, and you've got the baby in a manger, and you've got some people gathered around, and the, the angels are singing, and the shepherds are kind of walking toward it, and you have a great red dragon ready to eat the baby. That's a more biblical picture. That's a much more bit. So if you have, if you're any of your artists, painters, paint that. I told the first service, this is kind of barren up here. We'll put that right there. I think it'll be awesome. That's a better visual. That's what the, the, the Bible is calling us to imagine. Actually, there was a satanic power that was seeking to destroy the work of Christ from the very moment of his incarnation. And we saw that satanic power inhabit real power because in Matthew 2 it says Herod, the king, through desiring to keep his his power and his honor, hearing that a baby was born that would be king, says, I want to kill him. And just in case, let's eliminate all babies two years old and under in that region. What What was driving him? Honor and power. A demonic dynamic was standing behind the activity of Herod. In fact, that dynamic of power and uh, honor. Think about how much that disrupts our relationships. The last fight with your spouse, if you have a spouse or a good friend, about 80% of those fights are about power <laughs> and honor. Oh, he's being too rude to me. She's, she's, you know, trying to get over on me or I'm not being respected or I'm not being loved. All this kind of ridiculous. It's power and honoring each other. These are di- demonic dynamics and just work themselves into our relationships. This is the way of the enemy in this world. It also forms geopolitics and all the stuff, right? We see what's standing behind all of that is a dragon. And here we see the reason for the hostility. Verse 5. She, the woman, the faithful people, 
down through the ages, and then finally expressed in Mary, gave birth to a male child. This is Jesus, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. The reason there's such conflict is because Jesus' authority is absolute. A rod of iron doesn't mean harshness, it means firmness. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He is Lord. We did for our confession of faith the Apostles' Creed, which is early. It's an old confession. It's not actually from the Apostles. We just call it the Apostles' Creed because we believe it's a good compendium of apostolic teaching. It's probably third or fourth century, whatever. There's an earlier confession. The very first confession of the people of God is simply this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the ultimate authority. And keep in mind, in that culture, when they said that, they were required not to say that and say, Caesar is Lord. And saying another is Lord and not Caesar, it potentially brought the death penalty. Jesus is Lord. His authority is greater. And when God's people live with the authority of Jesus above all other authorities, sometimes that creates conflict, even in the most loving of people. We just have to be okay with that. If you live with the authority of Christ above all things, eventually it creates conflict in the world in which we live. Now, I know we want to say, look, if you're just loving enough, there won't be any conflict. Jesus was the most loving person who ever lived. He was executed. (laughs) He just, he couldn't, he would not, could not bow to Pilate. He's the most loving person ever. Conflict. Jesus' authority is greater than the United States of America. Jesus' authority is greater than a political party. Jesus' authority is greater than democracy and capitalism, as good as they may be. Jesus' authority is greater than our friend groups, than public opinion, than the latest, you know, spirit of the age, whatever. Jesus' authority is greater than the dragon. And that's the, the problem. There's an irreducible conflict. There's an irreducible adversarial relationship between the authority of Christ and the authority of every other thing. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So again, this is just a picture, not narrating history. This is all the life of Christ in a comma. Right? She gave birth to a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, comma, then he was caught up to God and the throne. The comma is all of Christ's life in there, right? The caught up to God in his throne is the resurrection and then the ascension to the throne where Christ now is on the throne ruling. And he rules now through the power of the gospel. And the current rule of Christ is a little foretaste of all the other coming rule of Jesus at the renewal of all things when he rules all the nations with a rod of iron. So every, every place Christ now exerts his rule, and he does so by the grace of the gospel, is a, is a prophetic sign of the downfall of Satan's eventual, eventual downfall of Satan's authority. Every place where Christ rules in grace, whether it's in your own heart or in relationships or in, in um, uh, workplace policies that bless other people in the name of Christ, it's a sign of Satan's downfall, and it is opposed But he cannot now touch the Son, Jesus, 
as we'll see next week, he goes off to make war on those in the Son, to destroy and derail and even devour if possible. Now, that might seem intimidating. We're born into a world at war with an enemy who seeks our destruction. But here's the great news. We're not alone. We're not alone. Jesus, remember, prayed not that we'd be taken out of the world, but that we'd be in it fully, looking around, loving well, speaking the truth, and we can do that because we are simply not alone. Look at verse 5. She gave, again, she gave birth to a male child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is an invitation to a mindset, a way of seeing a vision that just makes sense of so many things. It is a vision of the wilderness. The wilderness. There's this theme in the Bible. God's people get rescued out of slavery from the dragon Pharaoh through the Red Sea. Their, their slavery is broken. They're free, but they're not home yet. They're not in the promised land. They spend 40-some-odd years in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of being protected by God, provided for by God, and enacting a way of being that they will act fully in the promised land. They are sort of pre-enacting things that they will become full in the promised land. Life in Christ is pictured as a second exodus. By the regenerating power of the Spirit, our eyes are open to Christ. We lay hold of Him by faith. The power of sin and slavery is, uh, slavery to sin is broken in our life, and we live with Him in the in-between. But we're not home yet. Right? This, we say that this is not our home. Really, this earth is our home. It's just not our time yet. There's a, there's a restoration coming in the future where all things will be made new and be renewed and be made full. This is not that time. Right now, we live in a wilderness time. Just keep that in mind. This is our life right now. The, and this is the imaginative picture that we're supposed to have for our life, our, the wilderness. We live in the wilderness. It's like we're all renting and none of us are owning right now. Right? That's, pardon to all who actually are renting. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just different when, you're, when you own. When you rent, you're like, I like this place. I can make it look pretty, but I can't actually make it my own. Right? When you get your own home, you're like, oh, I can make it my own. Now I, I'm on the hook for 30 years. But uh, it's a little different. The wilderness is good, it is beautiful, it, we, can, we can take ownership of it, but we can't actually make it our own because it's not our own yet. We live in this time in between the times of this second exodus wilderness time. It's not a bad place, it's just not a permanent place. There are good things, and the good things that are are anticipatory of the coming fullness in the future. So part of our calling right now in this wilderness life as God's people is to embody a way of life that tells the truth about the world to come. And we've seen many other places in Scripture where that's, that's actually our calling in this world, to live as a foretaste of the coming future. And that itself is a prophetic witness to the nations that they can come and get some of this good stuff as we wait for the renewal of all things. So right now you live in the wilderness. This is a, what it's called here, a place prepared by God. The, a place in English is a deceptively simple word. Like I put my keys in the same place when I come into my house every time. 
in the same place so I don't forget them. It's a place, it's a place, it's a place. It doesn't mean anything. It's kind of a, in English, place means the absence of something. This place in the New Testament, Old Testament, means actually it's a holy place of God's presence. That's what place means in this context. So um, this is a place in the wilderness. Not just like somewhere out there someplace, it's God's place. The wilderness is a place where God personally is present with his people. And it's a place prepared by him for his people is what it says. Last night we were able to watch our grandson for a little bit. He stood over at our, at our place. We said, okay, Josiah's coming. He's like, I don't know, a year and change, like 14 months or something like that. So we got to think, okay, a little kid who walks around and is dangerous to himself at every turn is going to be in our house. So we got to prepare a place for him, right? The TV remote and my MacBook Air get off the coffee table because he can reach it, right? There's a book on the coffee. We take it off. We take, you know, make sure the chemicals are not available in that bottom cabinet. We have a sliding door that goes down to the basement steps. We, we shut the door, right? We're preparing a place for him. It's not a perfect place. It's not completely safe, but we're preparing it actually for him. Like, we didn't, like, wall off the basement, so there's no way he could fall down the stairs. Possibly I could leave the door open, something bad could happen, he could tumble down the stairs, right? It's not perfect, but it's intentionally prepared for him. What this is saying, God has said right now in this time, between the times, you're not home yet, you're in the wilderness, there's all kinds of brokenness, but I am with you, and I have prepared this place specifically for you, my people. It's not perfect, but I am with you. And no matter what else happens, you, you're all, in all this kind of warfare, there might be all kinds of devouring desire of the enemy. You are protected by my presence. Nothing gets to you without my permission. And I am even with you in the desperate times in this. I've made this for you specifically. It's a place prepared by God for you. And then twin temptations we have in the wilderness, just depending on your makeup here. This is a place where the kingdom of God has already come. We taste it already, but it's not yet here fully. Now, depending on your makeup or your personality, I've noticed two things. For some, because you taste it already, there's like good things that happen in the kingdom of God. The temptation is to believe we can actually turn this thing into a utopia. Right? Maybe the church or this, have this utopian vision, like, yes, good things happen. More can happen. That desire is the seedbed of every oppressive regime that's ever happened in history. Just read the books. The other side, I would say us, where I tend to live, and the little more cynical side, because the kingdom is not yet here, my, my temptation to engage things is like this. What's the point? It's all going to hell anyway. Right? That is not, that's a biblical term, sorry kids, but it's a biblical term. Um, it's, that is not a biblical vision either. We live in this in-between time where we have tasted of the Spirit and we are empowered now to live in a way that pictures the coming of the kingdom. Right? We, don't, we don't build the kingdom of God. We cannot build the kingdom of God. As we, Jesus builds the kingdom. We receive the kingdom. We enact the kingdom. We give a preview of the kingdom. Jesus builds the kingdom. We receive it. Now, I, th I think uh, what's happened, and I've been part of the problem here, so I'm going to confess a misstep I made a few years ago in, in emphasis. For several years in American history, we had this thing like this strong, sacred, secular divide, like where, you know, 
it's almost Gnostic. Spiritual is good, physical is bad. So like for many years, maybe old evangelicalism was ca- uh, characterized by like the real point is going to heaven when you die. That's the, that's the important thing. And it's all somewhere out there. Now that's an over, it's, it's true, but it's a wrong emphasis. The response to that in a lot of evangelical circles, and some of you have been touched by this, and I have, and I've been part of the problem, is to say, no, the destination of heaven is earth. Material is important, and it's good. Doing works of justice and building beautiful artifacts, that's all good because God will take that and rebuild it and redeem it. And there's an overemphasis on sort of this utopian vision like right here is important. You've got to hold these things in tension. The kingdom has already come, but it is not yet here. Apart from the return of Christ, it won't come here fully. It won't come by our building it. Now, God may bring it through our enacting and picturing and being a foretaste of the coming kingdom. So, uh, years ago, I kind of schooled you guys the wrong way a little bit, so I'm backing off that a little bit. Um, Finally, nourished by God is a way of being. Verse 6 again, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. I just want to point out that the church here is, again, just pictured as one woman. This is an invitation to as much as possible to have unity in the church of Jesus Christ, as much as humanly possible. We want to be praying for other churches, not just in our denomination, but those who name the name of Christ, even if on secondary things we may not have any agreement at all. Praying for them, loving them, giving to missions agency. I love the fact that, that Michael and Kanan Granger planted Trinity Fellowship in Addis Ababa, and it's a Baptist church. Love it. It's still part of the woman, right? It's the church. We should long for these things. Nourish for 1,260 days. If you remember, this is the same time frame as last week. We saw the 42 months where at the same time God's people were protected and the nations trample over the people. It's the same time that at the end of the passage where uh, they're persecuted for a time, times, and half a time, which is a year, two years, half a year. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. It's all the same time frame. That is the time, as we saw last week, the time between the first coming of Christ and the return of Christ, the symbolic time in which you now live and I now live. This is the time where we have an enemy who would like to devour us, but we also have the God's presence, his intentional his intentional providential care of us, and a promise, I just love this, to nourish his people in the wilderness, to nourish us, to feed us. That nourish, that, the, the, uh, in which she is to be nourished, that's a passive verb. She's, you're nourished, you're fed. Like the picture there of a, of a young child, of a baby being fed by a bottle maybe. <laughs> baby can't feed himself but it does have to eat. There's something to do to receive that. What's front and center in our calling in this wilderness time is to embody a way of life in community as one that is a picture of the coming kingdom and we eat. We allow God to nourish us. 
So whatever you're facing in the wilderness, whatever is taking your strength away, there is a source of strength. There is one source of strength, and God gives it. He gives his nourishment. What is that nourishment? Well, there's this theme that's developing in the book of Revelation. Last week, we saw the the people of God compared to Moses and Elijah. Moses, if you remember, is driven into the wilderness, and he and the people are fed by God with bread from heaven, manna. Elijah, if you remember, is driven into the wilderness in 1 Kings, and he is fed by God through ravens with bread. God feeds his people in the wilderness with bread of some kind. Now, in Christ, we're in the second wilderness, tasting of the good things, but we're not home yet. What does he feed us with? What kind of bread? Let me read you something our Savior Jesus said in John 6. Jesus said to the disciples, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, which was a picture of that, and they died. This is the bread, I think he's pointing to himself, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for my life, the life of the world is my flesh or is myself. What do we get to be nourished in the wilderness? What do you get you, you, you sense the not home yetness in your life in some way, in many ways perhaps. Maybe the relationships aren't what you wanted. Maybe your own progress and growth and love for Christ is not what you want. Maybe your church isn't what you want. What does God give to nourish us? Himself over and over and over again in the gospel. Part of the reason we come to the table on a weekly basis, the communion table, is because this pictures, this is the nourishment of God. The grace of Christ given to you in your wilderness, in the wilderness in which we inhabit right now. While we're not home yet, God says, I know you're not home yet, and I am with you right now, and I want to nourish you with myself and my own grace. If you're in Christ, we're going to come to the communion table. And if you're in Christ, I want you to come to the table with us. We pray.